Welcome to episode 671 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio team, welcome along to episode 671 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James. How are you going, mate? I'm very good, Bevan. Yourself? I'm bloody brilliant, mate. Yeah, are, you, are you back home now? I am back home. Nice. Back in Chicha. Catching up on work. Learned how to surf when I was over in Hawaii. I heard you went to a championship and you won it. Yeah, went to Alamoana, had a day there. What'd you buy? I bought some new shorts. And a, some t-shirts Because that's what you buy in Hawaii Did Not you go to that pizza place we went to? Yes I did We were staying on Sunset Beach Which is uh, up near sort of all the big surf beaches Oh, Just got like a Airbnb typey sort of place uh, How so long we're you gonna, stayed We're going to connect with the locals How long uh, did you stay there for? We stayed there I think four nights Had a oh, couple nice. of extra nights in Kona after the race And then over there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday Five nights oh. One day of shopping, four days of cruising. High life for some, eh? Uh, I'm talking proudly brought to you by Extreme Endurance. It's your lactic buffer. And our patrons. And his name for you, Jumbo. Scott the Sleek Chic Sheridan. That's a, that's a, that's a tongue twister if you've ever had one. <laughs> Good old Craig the Time Lord McCarthy. And David Sweet Justice Sobel. So this is another one of our While We're Away shows. Uh, I think this is the last of the lot, isn't it? Next week we're back it in the studio. So next week we are back in the studio. So this week we're just going to talk about the coming up races and then we've got an interview with Steve Gurney, which I actually did on my show a while ago. And it's it's Steve's a pretty honest soul man. Um, <laughs> and he's been through some struggles and... Uh, well, first of all, who's Steve Dugaguni? So he had won uh, New Zealand Coast to Coast multiple times. So nine times. Nine, was it? Yeah, yeah. It was nine, yep. uh, Coast to Coast, for, we've talked about on the show before, but basically what you do is you run 2.2 kilometres uh, and then you jump onto your bikes. Uh, you're going from one side of the South Island to the other. You bike, I think it's about 50 or 60 kilometres um, as a pack, draft legal, and you're allowed. A lot of the, in the one day, you're on your TT bike and it's draft legal, so it's, uh, <laughs> it's all good stuff. Uh, then you jump off your bike and you do about a 30 kilometer run um, slash hike through the mountains and this is proper this is not trail running this is running through rivers jumping over boulders have you ran it? Uh, I have only once there is a little bit of trail stuff but most yeah. of it is uh, is proper running along riverbeds sort of things. It's uh, it's, it's good fun, and it, it typically the top guys are taking similar to what you sort of do a marathon in. Um, so maybe about three hours or so for for the, for the top. I think but it's more now because it's longer now, isn't it, or is it shorter? Uh, I can't remember. Can't remember. It did make but, some changes. But anyway, it's about about three hours roughly, and then you jump on your bikes. So you got a fifteen kilometer road bike stage to get to where you start the kayak. You run down this hill, jump in your kayak, and then the kayak is I've got uh, seventy kilometers of braided rivers uh, going through all sorts of gorges uh, kayaking is not easy and uh, that's a, a really challenging part of the course then you have to get out of your kayak and you run straight up this bloody hill and uh, it's really difficult you know you've been sitting down for ages you got to stand yeah. up run up a hill and then you get onto your bike and uh, you bike 70 k's, 70 k's yep. uh, across to Christchurch so it's called the coast to coast because you start with one foot in the ocean on the west coast and then you finish at the beach in New Brighton uh, and the other coast and you can then you can go down and put your foot in the water uh, so it's longer than nine man we've had guys on the show talking about it before Braden Curry used to do it Dougal Allen won it last year uh, and yeah it takes them longer and they've all said it's just a Different sort of challenge to Iron Man. You're out there by yourself. Yeah, I should see that. I should see the Iron Man's only really hard last part of the run. Mm. Whereas uh, the Coast Coast is probably harder overall. You've got to concentrate. You know, you're on the kayak. Yeah. You're by yourself for whatever it takes them. Yeah. Five hours. Yeah, individual journeys. Nobody around there. Yeah, nobody. You know, it takes a lot of concentration. So it's a great race, and Steve Gurney won it a lot of and, times. And, and interestingly, we were just talking before that we pushed record on the show. Um, the coast to coast, you know, today when you got these big corporations kind of buying up brands, and you know these, you know, Iron Man and all these big branded races, coast to coast has held its ground, man. Like you're just saying, that next year's race was already sold out. Yeah, and there was a, a period. It just seemed to flourish again because there was a period there where it certainly was not selling out. 
um, but it has changed ownership and it is owned by a very big company, big New Zealand company now. Yep. But uh, they've obviously done some things right and, and they've brought in a lot of new categories, team stuff where you can do just a run only, the yep. bike only, um, teams and they've, they've made it work so good on them. Yeah, really good stuff. So we're going to have Steve Gurney on later on the show but John, let's just talk about Ironman, the inaugural Ironman Ireland. Go the Irish. You doing an Irish accent? No, I can't. I'm not Top of the morning try. to you. There you go. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> this is quite a long time, but we're recording before the race, so the entry list will change quite some bit, I would imagine. But when I scan through the list as of the 14th of uh, May, Brent McMahon was listed in other races, so we'll see if he rocks up. But go him. We've got Philip Graves out there. I'm sure he'll be lighting up the bike course. Victor Del Corral. Uh, then on the female side of things, Lindsay Corbin is listed to race. Uh, Anya Epak, who used to be Anya Berenak, she'll be good and strong. Caroline Livesley and Angela Nath, who's also often listed on a lot of start lists. So um, that may well change between now and the race. Looking at the bike course, uh, so the race is being held down near Cork in Southern Ireland. If this bike course on Ride With GPS is accurate, holy schmoly, they're gonna, you're going to be out there for a while. It says there's 1,800 metres of climbing throughout the course. Quite lumpy by the look of it. That's quite a lot of climbing. So good luck to everybody out there on the bike course. I'm sure it'll be beautiful. That part of uh, Ireland is spectacular. Uh, and then the run also looks like it's a little bit lumpy. Uh, you've got about 300 metres of climbing across the marathon, um, sort of along a coastline, but I'm sh by the look of the file, it does look like it's a, just got lots of little bumps in it, maybe a little bit like Ironman New Zealand with uh, little tiny hills all over the place. So I'm sure it will do well, Ironman Ireland. The inaugural one. I imagine it'll be pretty popular, won't it? I, I'm just. I think it sold out. I could be wrong here, but yep. I think it did very, very well. Yeah, so good stuff. Go, go, go Ireland, Ireland. Um, John Boy, that's pretty much it. So we'll get straight into an interview with Steve Gurney. He is a legend in the multi-sport, uh, a very open public figure, mm -hmm. um, and it's a pretty interesting interview. So here is Steve Gurney. Right, I'm very excited to have a very a legend in New Zealand in multi-sport, and not just in New Zealand, worldwide, wild in multi-sport. Um, a man who's also promoting some pretty important things in society around health and kids and exercise and stuff like that, and a man who's just a bit of an impressive man. Steve Gurney, welcome to the show. Oh, you overestimate me, Kevin. <laughs> but, but nice to be chatting. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. So let's start with your athletic journey. So... Maybe just give a little bit of background for those who don't know much about your athletic journey. Tell us about, you know, Steve Gurney, the athlete. Yeah, right. So I, I was a professional athlete for about 20 years. Uh, I mean, I wasn't full professional as in, you know, a rugby player or a baseball player or whatever, but uh, in New Zealand, about as professional as you can get. And in and, and, and that I didn't have a, a full-time job, I was supplementing my income from public speaking and, um, and prize money and that sort of stuff, of course, and sponsors. But uh, I started way back in the mid-80s, probably, um, when I was a young lad, you know, 25 years old or something like that. I'm 55 now. And um, so it was in the days when Coast to Coast, which is a legendary race in New Zealand, some you know international listeners won't know about it. it. It starts on the west coast of the South Island, and finishes on the east coast, of course, but in between is a mountain range called the Southern Alps. And so there's mountain running and um, kayaking down a, a class two whitewater river, plus cycling. So um, that's where I kind of made my name uh, by winning that nine times. It wasn't instant, though. It took five attempts to win it and um, a lot of learning in that space. And parallel to that was I was doing mountain biking uh, and representing New Zealand a couple of times at the World Champs cross-country riding and then uh, there's also adventure racing of course was born in 1989 with the Raid Gulawas in, in, in Queenstown uh, or New Zealand uh, sorry not Manapuri sort of Fjordland and then that was the, the birth of adventure racing worldwide um, with the Eco, um, Eco Challenge the Primal Quest and you know all the outdoor quests that uh, you know proliferate, proliferated around the world and so um, it was good timing to get into the sport when it was in its infancy and grow with it and um, you know be be reasonably dominant in, 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 in my in my time you know and there's a lot of talented athletes come through in that time of course so it wasn't all easy 
Uh, and I retired probably 12 years ago with a bit of an injury in my, well, big injury in my ankle. So, And since then I've been um, uh, a full-time speaker, actually, conference speaker, motivational type speaker, you know, with, of course, all the metaphor and story that we had from traveling around the world doing my sport. So it's been wonderful to pass on the knowledge and the learning and the mental excellence sort of learnings I've had in a business sense and a little bit of coaching written some books um autobiographical books and instruction books on you know, beginner's guide to adventure sports stuff like that um so that's kind of in a nutshell is that what you're after Bevan? yeah mate it's perfect hey so tell us about your your you know i'm really into the kind of the mind side of the game and you know a lot of people look at like programming and stuff but i kind of really i'm fascinated in kind of the journey of the self so can you tell me some of the key lessons you learned about yourself as an athlete and strategies you use because you were successful you know and i'm always interested in the person who can consistently you know you won the coast coats and again for those who don't know it's it's an epic event um and you won it nine times yeah so 244ks and it started as a two-day event you you stop in arthur's pass and camp for the weekend oh sorry for for the night and then but then after three years they converted to have an option for a longer stay the one day race so yeah. it's about 12 hours on average sort of thing for the winning time 11 yeah. hours sometimes depending on the weather so so yeah. what kind of what kind of tell me about you know the 25 year old up until the moment where you retired what are some of the key lessons you learned around strategies and tools and perspectives that really helped you be successful as an athlete yeah that's a big question but a goodie actually um, so my success actually probably came well definitely came from not being very good at as as i started it wasn't it wasn't a natural easy thing for me to be an athlete you know at school the primary school when i was you know 10 years or so old uh you know 10 to 13 14 uh, i was always last at the school sports and it was kind of that that being last that frustration that drove me to actually explore just how good can I be? You know, I've got, I got curious, you know, do I have to be last? And then I found, you know, endurance sport. I was really good at endurance sport. And, and, and that sort of drive is what drove me initially. And then when I retired from racing, it was due to injury, which is incredibly frustrating and got me actually really badly depressed for a couple of years, mm. um, like, like um, medically depressed, you know. And so that drove me to question, what drove me as an athlete to do what I did despite not being particularly good at it as an athlete, you know, talented athlete. So, and that, that opened a whole lot of, uh, well, answered a whole lot of other questions, well, opened a whole lot of other questions whilst answering some of the simpler ones. And it was all, all about what drives you as a human. And I think a lot of top athletes are probably driven, I'm guessing here, by, I'm not guessing, I have a pretty good intuition that, that, you know, a lot of them are driven like me. They're driven to try and prove something. And in our younger years, we probably don't even know it. It's just unconscious drive to prove that we're good enough or lovable or need to prove something to the bully that beat us up or our parents or something. We need to prove something. And, and, and then it's not until later on when you become old and have the midlife crisis that, that a lot of us discover what it actually was, a, you know, what that drive's about. And I think and that's nothing wrong with that at all. It's actually what it is to be human. But it's good to be curious, like you are, about what, makes a, a top athlete what drives them to, to win what drives them to enjoy their sport and you know i think that leads to the next segues nicely to the next point i want to make is that um you know for the first 10 years of my career i was putting the cart before the horse you know the wrong way around i was trying to get enjoyment by winning um and it wasn't in the second half of my career that i actually got wins by enjoying it oh, wow. and i think and that's probably really important i think if you want to get sustainable wins is to figure out how to enjoy it you know and um and that kind of yeah, we're getting quite deep and meaningful here but here, that's how we roll mate that's what we're here for <laughs> yeah but i think you know nowadays i'm helping in my coaching and business and in sport i'm helping people to understand or get a bit of a feeling about what might be their purpose on the planet because then when you set goals that support your purpose on the planet you become unstoppable mm. and um, you know, when we're younger, I think it's just testosterone or, you know, as a female, I don't know what exactly, but that sort of thing that drives us to prove ourselves. And as we get older, it's more the mental side of things that drive us to improve ourselves rather than the physical. You, you say there was a moment, you know, you, your, your career transitioned away from trying to find happiness through winning, through happiness through enjoying. Was there a moment that kind of made you discover that? Well, there wasn't... Uh, well, there's a few things. That's another good question. There's a few things that all culminated over a couple of years. And first one was um, 
um, I got introduced uh, to the field of NLP, you know, and mm. you mentioned about programming before, and it's not necessarily something you want to talk about here, but I think it's important actually. NLP's um, sports psychology, basically. Yeah. It's, it sounds fancy, neuro-linguistic programming, but it's actually really basic. It's about understanding what the people do in their brains that gets them their results in lives. You know, what sort of things do they visualize? You know, how do they visualize their goal? Is it bright and colorful and close up or, you know, is it dark and distant and black and white and fuzzy? It's about what sort of things do we say to ourselves and, and what tone of voice do we say to ourselves? Uh, your things, you know, do we love ourselves in the way we speak to ourselves? Are we encouraging to ourselves? You know, it's okay to talk to yourself. It's pretty normal, actually. <laughs> and, and as one of my instructors said one, one day, so, yeah, science has proved it's perfectly healthy to talk to yourself. The only trouble is when you when there's two voices talking to yourself and then you've got to go to couples counseling. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a joke. You know, so it's all normal and it's just about understanding what we're doing and doing it more consciously. Um, and so NLP is also about, you know, um, the richness with which we describe our goals to ourselves and how we plan it. You know, like, do we... Um, imagine what it's like and not just on the finish line winning and and do we think about what's it like in the weeks and months afterwards or what's it like on the journey to it you know when we're doing our training and how do we make our training really fun um and you know piece also about how do we what sort of fears and obstacles do we put in our way and how do we understand that and, and find ways around that for example phobias a lot of the kayakers i teach um when I'm coast-to-coast coaching, you know, I see that their running and biking is going really well, but their kayaking is crap and it's not improving. And I'm, so, you know, have, I sit, sit down and have a good old chat with them and figure out what, what's going on. And and uh, many, many, many times it's been because they've had a bad experience as a kid with water and oh. they've got developed a phobia of or a fear of being or worried about being trapped upside down in their kayak with a spray skirt on. And... Um, and it's, it's just an irrational fear because something happened as a, you know, a kid, you know, they fell off the boat and their uncle rescued them before they drowned, you know, it could be something like that. Or, um, uh, you know, jumping in the swimming pool when they're a little youngster and not being able to get out. And so NLP has reason or has, has systems where you can just, you know, fix that, you know, teach your brain a new way to think about it. And it's only a half an hour, you know, 30 minute process. And, you know, I do that with my kayaking clients and you see them just their kayaking just takes off and they're enjoying it and they get really good results because of that so it's that's that's another aspect of nlp you know understanding what blocks are we doing in our heads um that aren't that aren't actually real they're just um it's fear trying to protect us from from hurting ourselves or killing ourselves so that was instrumental so you asked you know what happened was there a moment so I got introduced to that field of NLP and, uh, you know, it's understanding what was going on in my brain and, and how I could be more powerful in my brain and getting the results I wanted. There's also, um, I got introduced to my mentor, Graham Kelton, who rest his soul, he died a couple of years ago, but um, he was a very wise man and just, you know, he'd, he'd teach me the basics of getting organized, um, a to-do list and all the demands that you have on your, in, uh, you know, in your office and home and bills to pay. Uh, there's also... Uh, another major one was I, I got a, z- a disease, leptospirosis, um, mm. from a race we were doing in uh, Borneo. Um, it was the Red Gulwaz race, the third one, ninety-five uh, or something like. Yes, yeah, nineteen ninety-five. And um, the last stage, we had to go through the Mulu Caves, and, and um, naive as we were, we didn't realise that these bats in the caves. There's millions of them, of course. It's the world's biggest cave system. Um, they, these bats had a disease called leptospirosis that you can catch. Um, if you get it, you get their poo and your in a cut, or you know maybe a splash in your eye, and um, or dare I say it, on on your food and you eat it, um, it's mucous membrane sort of thing. Uh, that you know, okay, I really sick, nearly died, very 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 close to dying, with um, unconscious in a coma, three life support machines, blah blah blah. So that was a big wake up call about why am I doing my sport? And uh, of course the. I had kidney failure and, and the, the, the nephrologist, the, you know, the kidney specialist said, oh, you should probably not do any more of the racing. It's pretty hard on your kidneys because it's, di- you know, a lot of hot conditions, diuretic, dehydration sort of stuff. So, and that was a, like a red flag to a bull. <laughs> I thought, no, I'm not going to stop my racing. I was in that unconsciously driven stage of my career. You know, I've got to win, got to win, got to win. And, uh, and so that was actually... Um, more motivational, you know, the fact you might not be able to race again, maybe race even harder. And that's where my wins started coming from as well, along with the NLP learnings about how to have more fun and how to get more powerful. 
What's my mind doing? It's interesting because as a character, for those who don't know Steve, one thing that's always come across is you you don't lack fun. You know, you've always had lots of personality. (laughs) You've always kind of pushed the edge and, you know, you've always been known within kind of the public perception, at least, that you're lots of fun. So you're saying through that experience, you felt you need to bring more fun back for you. Good question. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It was, yeah, that's pretty accurate, actually. I think uh, I... I, yeah, as you say, ever since I was, you know, at university, I've decided, no, stuff being shy. I was super, super shy when I was a kid. And I thought, no, let's get out and be a bit more energetic and involved. And so I joined the canoe club, which was legendary. The University of Canterbury Canoe Club was a good bunch of mates. Instead of being pissheads like other engineers at university, uh, we were always out in the weekends kayaking and uh, getting in the wilderness and, and these really down to the souls but we just had genuine fun you know and so that's when i thought yeah just your fun was okay but when i got halfway through you know that leptospirosis thing we talked about i realized that a lot of that fun in my race you know at university i'd been having genuine fun and they got quite serious fun wanting to win races and it was too serious and then to bring back some of the um, what I call intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic motivation so intrinsic motivation i wanted to figure out how do I get drive and motivation from within rather than designing things to make it fun? I mean, let me put it another way. It's useful to have as many forms of motivation as you can, but I want to get more in touch with that purpose on the planet motivation. Why, how is winning these races going to support my mission in, in life? Or when I get to you know, my deathbed, if you like, you want to be a bit morose, you know, and how am I going to make sure I have no regrets? Because actually that was one thing that happened, Bevan. Um, we were on the deathbed, you literally were, so. I was, <laughs> I was in, I was in hospital in Malaysia and I got a whole lot of get well cards from New Zealand. And one of them contained a desiderata from an old lady. She was on her deathbed and, you know, desiderata is reflections on life from a wise old person. Oh, really? Usually, usually as they're about to die and what advice did they have to the world or their great-grandchildren or whatever. And so this was a lady who was writing advice as she was, you know, in her final weeks of life. And she said, oh, I've had a good life, you know, but dot, 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 if I had my life again, I'd do things differently. And here I was on my near-death bed, and they'd said, oh, actually, you're probably going to survive. And I thought, wow, that's actually, that letter that lady's written is actually a list of regrets. And how tragic is that? Yeah. And how would it be if this was my deathbed? Would I have a list of regrets or would I have a blank piece of paper? And so I then resolved, well, I got life's pretty short. <laughs> Let's make sure whenever my deathbed actually does arrive, make sure it's a pretty blank piece of paper if you can, you know? Make sure there's no wish I'd done these things. So that's an away from motivation. There's different types of motivation, of course. There's toward motivation and away from motivation. So toward motivation is setting some... Uh, well, you know, a BHAG, you know, um, a big, hairy, audacious goal, you know, something that's really challenging you outside your comfort zone so much that you feel excitedly nervous about it. So that's a toward motivation, setting a really attractive goal. Away from motivation, we've all had as kids, you know, tidy your room or you're not allowed outside to play or, or as adults, we get pay your, your, your GST on, you know, your tax on time or you'll get a penalty, you know, so that's away from motivation. And so the... The, me not wanting to have any regrets on my deathbed after reading that desiderata is, a, is an away from type motivation. Um, and couple that with toward motivation and it's really powerful. So set really cool, exciting goals, plus also examine what regrets you'd have if you didn't do this or didn't fix, finish this by this end of the phase of your life. So, you know, I realised as an athlete, I've only got a finite uh, few years to, to when I'm at my peak. So you just want to make the most of those. It's interesting. We've talked about how that moment kind of shifted you as an athlete, and it kind of it allowed you to get more into the moment, not necessarily the outcome. Um, how did it shift you as a person outside of being an athlete? Ooh, um, yeah. <laughs> this is there's a little little um, there's a little quote I used to have on the bottom of my email that says, um, "I lead a balanced lifestyle." everything to the excess <laughs> but but in actual fact you as an athlete as a top athlete it's very imbalanced your lifestyle will be and, it is, and as any driven person whether it be sport or business or whatever your goals are if you're out there out you know the bell curve if you're on the five or 2.5 percent on the extremity of the bell curve you're not going to be balanced you know in terms of what 
our normal Western society calls balance. Mm. You're going to be an extremist, and that's probably what it takes to to succeed, actually. Mm. And you've got to you've got to weigh it up. You know, am I prepared to make those sacrifices? And you know, when I was younger, uh, yeah, I didn't party, I didn't drink much at all. You know, occasionally, yeah, but because in, in endurance sport you can't afford to get dehydrated because of stuff you're training up for the next few days, so you don't drink. And you need an early night so you can get up and go training the next day. And um, parties just waste the weekend, you know. So um, that was a sacrifice you made socially, you know. And I was pretty much a loner in those days. There's not many other, there weren't many other professional athletes who could go training during the day. So I did most of my training on my own. And so the chickens that come home to roost now, I'm, I'm actually pretty lonely. You know, I'm single, yeah. never be married, don't have kids. And so I'm paying the price now. Yeah. And as a 55-year-old, it's not a nice place to be. And um, so, yeah, all your mates in normal life have had kids, you know, now in their retirement, not retirement, but now they've got the money and the time to go and go out and do some adventures. And I'm busy <laughs> thinking, damn, I'd like to start being a father. <laughs> um, anyone out there wants to have kids with me? <laughs> and it's kind of too late, you know? Yeah. Um and you know, any nubile or marriageable woman that I'm sort of approaching, think I'm a dirty old man because I'm 55 <laughs> and I need someone in their 35 you know, or whatever. Um, so it's pretty tough, Bevan. Um, it's something I'm dealing with at the moment. So I just tell that as an example of the imbalance or the lifestyle that you do sacrifice to sometimes achieve your goals when you're younger mm. or at any age, I suppose. Um, I forget what your question was. Did that answer it? No, no. Well, the, that kind of life-defining moment. What else did? It, where did you grow from that? Um, outside of just being an athlete, you know. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Outside, so that's what I was saying. Outside of being an athlete, it's, yeah. You know, normal life's not normal. So um, uh, yeah, probably all I can say on that, I suppose. So you, you mentioned um, before uh, that post post being an athlete, you kind of suffered a bit of depression. Mm. What got you through it? Because, you know, I can imagine, first of all, once you, you know, you're the star of the world, you're the man, you know, you turn up everyone, you know, there's this kind of, there's an ego, there's an aura, there's a respect, you know, there's a lot of things you get from being that guy. And Mm. then suddenly that's kind of disappears. I actually remember I read an article from you years ago talking about how after winning the coast, it would always be a a period afterwards, which was emotionally quite challenging um, because of the down of after the high. Can you tell us about that and then maybe tell us, even when it got really bad once you gave up your career, how you worked through that time to get to a healthier place? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've, good question. And it's, it's, I wrote a whole book on this, so it's going to be hard to jam it into five minutes. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of documented in my book, Lucky Legs, which is autobiography, and Eating Dirt, which is the second half of it. Um, but to put it in a nutshell, I suppose... First of all, there's a realisation that, yeah, when you are the man and you are at the top of your sport, there's usually ego. And, yeah, my ego is a bit out of control, a bit arrogant. And so the key, uh, you know, since I've retired from racing and suffered a bit, you know, emotionally and spiritually, I've sort of the key is to realise, to become present to that and to be aware that there is ego there. And, and then you can choose a different response if you want. And awareness is the biggest thing, uh, being present instead of thinking sometime in the future. Mm. And so, and speaking of that, there's a good segue. So the dark hole you fall in after winning a race is usually because there's, you haven't reset, I hadn't reset my goal for the next goal, you know. So if, if you know, like let's say a coast-to-coast race, I've been training, you know, in earnest, focusing on this race for, for, for six months and everything's geared towards that, your attitude, your training, everything, social life a lot. And then finally the race is over phew, everything's, well, there's no sort of purpose anymore. So the way around that is to have already set the next race in your sights. You know, what's the next one I'm going to? It might be another race in Australia or it might be the Moto Challenge or mountain biking or whatever. And so you're already planning for that one and you don't, you know, I don't, I found that was a solution. You don't fall in a hole of, of depression. But the bigger picture is, is actually to understand what's going on in your brain. This is where the NLP was so useful, was to, mm. to notice what's happening in my head that caused that depression, that sadness, the, you know, the, the big black hole after a race. And, and, and that usually was around, well, it's a big, big topic to cover, but we as humans like to improve our lot. We always want to have goals. We, want to be, we always want the, the, you know, to be fitter or we always want to have the next 
model of car or the the the, the fashionable t-shirt that's not you know that they haven't got yet you know and so and so it is with uh, racing we always want to focus on winning the next race or getting better and that's about living in the future mm-hmm. and if you there's an there's an author Eckhart Tolle who who's famous for the power of now concept is about living in the moment rather than living in the future all the time and he says you know so humans are just so prone to this this is what you know it's no it's not don't beat yourself up about it but we we tend to uh say well I'll be happy once I've got my better house or be happy once i've got a bigger car or i'll be happy once i've won 10 coast to coast <laughs> and, and yeah, so this is how it was when i won the, when my first coast to coast i got there and yeah it was good for a few months and then that emptiness came back again and you thought oh maybe have, maybe happiness actually only comes when you've won two coast to coast so you, you, so it goes on and on and on and finally i won nine but not my tenth and that was a that was a uh, a, a real grain of sand in your underpants you know that really, really itched and bothered me and so that caused me to figure out, well, actually, yeah, I am living in the future. And um, that's where that dark hole of disappointment after winning, achieving your goal comes from, is you're always living in the future. And actually, you have to sometimes, or no, we have to as often as we can live in the present moment. And that's really hard for athletes who are goal-driven because we mostly live in the future. And yeah, sure, you have to live in the future so you can plan to um, pay your bills work and paint the house and all those sorts of things, mow the lawn, but, um, but what Eckhart Tolle is saying is try and live in the future as less as you can and in the moment as much as you can um, in, a, in a practical sense. So, you know, meditation, for example, that's living in the moment at its extreme. It's really hard for most athletes, mm. but if you can manage to do some form of meditation, it could be qigong or something like that, you know, where you're, you're quietening your mind. For many athletes, it's out going for a ride on the hills, you know, in, in, below anaerobic threshold, it, you know, just a, re- a recovery ride. You know, that can be your meditation type stuff, mm. but it's it, it'd be nice to be able to do that without having a crutch like your bike or whatever. Can you do it in just any moment yeah. um, when you choose? One thing you've done a lot in the recent time is um, with the Coast to Coast has been um, kind of mentoring young kids from lower decile areas to get into the sport. And also yeah. you've done a lot of coaching. Um, you've helped, you know, you've, I'm, you've, I'm sure you've been a mentor for many people throughout your journey. I'm just kind of curious, you know, it's one thing to try to influence yourself, but when you're trying to guide somebody else, what have been some of the things that you've been really successful with and maybe what have been some of the struggles with that as well? Yeah, okay. Uh, where do we start with that? Big question. Well, it's incredibly satisfying to be able to put something back into the sport or back into some people that need some or can use your help. Um, and that's where we've been going with these uh, youth at risk, you know, the, the kids that are destined for jail or whatever or trouble and um, will need some help. Um, and so it wasn't my initiative, it was the Moffats actually, a mate of mine, Steve Moffat and his daughter Jess. and um some other team around that and i've just been invited to be part of that and it's been incredibly uh, it's been a blessing you know really nice to be able to to put something back um so um there's a movie actually coming out oh it's showing at the film festival uh, this week and next oh, wow. week i think it's called east to east about those guys um in, in linwood uh, who we took through the coast to coast um and jess moffat and uh, the team are, are still doing this uh, every year. We take on a new crowd, and you know, like last year or this year actually, yeah, we every year um, I usually do the kayaking league with them in a double kayak. You know, so they're, they're accompanying you the whole way by previous champions like Nathan Farber and Emily and those sorts of people. Me as um, so that's what that's about. And yeah, we just want to keep on doing that and, and showing these these young folks that there's more to life than you know the crap that. And the crime that goes on in, in a city, you know, let's get out in the wilderness and see what's happening out there and what, what, show, show them. What, what do they learn? Like, when, as you see these kids in the experience, yeah. what do you they see a light bulb it? go on. You really see, do. yeah, you do. You see them realize, shit, there's a whole lot more out there than they, they than they realize. There's, uh, you know, it's a social construct, all the stuff they've been doing in, you know, in the, in the city. This is more about the wilderness and the world and connection to, to what really is. Um, they also see all these other athletes who are doing healthy things. You know, they're, they're not doing alcohol and drugs and stuff like that. They're, they're out there training and they mm. treat their, temp, their body as a temple and respect for the wilderness and 
respect for the being you know bobbing down a river and being at one with the river and being in the in the forest the beach forest and smelling the forest and feeling the mud on your feet and um and connecting it's you know like earthing and so there's that aspect there's also you see it was all very well doing that in training and seeing them grow there but um grow from young boys to young men you know it's quite a, a lovely change to yeah. see them mature in their responses you know they're quite immature when they're doing training well it's just saying stupid things and doing stupid things and hard to get out training but by the time the race comes around you see they're actually realizing the mental discipline that's needed there and i think that's what one thing they really are missing is the mental discipline and then you know taitama he really surprised us he was the first one of the two was taitama and bryce and Taitama was one of the hardest to get out of out of the house and come training with us um, to get him to you know be disciplined enough. But then he surprised us all. We, you know, he could have blown us over the knocked us over the feather here. He entered the mountain run version the next year oh, of his own accord. We we didn't have to wow. we didn't encourage him to. He just next thing we knew it, he told us uh, he told us that um, he'd entered. So that was really nice to see. So you can make a difference. The one thing I do worry about though is, you know, you can show some people a new thing, but to to get people who you know kids or youth who are really in trouble truly out of trouble you need to actually remove them extract them from the environment that they're big and if we pop them back into that environment after it's shown the coast to coast they're likely to head back off the rails again so um that's that's the one thing we haven't been able to do yet Mm. but in saying that once you've once they've experienced the coast to coast they can't unexperience it you know they'll always know it's there Mm. and hopefully that's a guiding light to them in, in, in later years but to answer your other question about coaching and putting stuff back, one of the key things about coaching I've found is that you can't lecture at someone and tell them how to do stuff and be sustainable. Yes, you can do that, and, but it's not sustainable. What, one of the key tenets with coaching uh, that I maintain, and this is the same with the NLP um, learning I've had, is that a person already really does know the answers in their head. You just have to be the sounding board mm-hmm. or be the, the, the medium that you can question them and ask them okay well, you know what do you think you should do here and what would be a powerful way to do this what would be a powerful way to get fit and um what things do you need to do to be able to plan to do this and get them to find their answers themselves and that's that's the more sustainable way in other words teach a man to fish rather than give him a fish for a day you know so yeah. was it give a man a fish feed him for a day teach a man to fish feed him for a lifetime so that's what coaching is about really but how, was that a hard thing to translate because i know you know it's we're all very good at giving our opinion on how to be successful in an area aren't we you know look, look yeah. at relationship advice we're all bloody good at giving relationship advice aren't we <laughs> you know and so um you know like it's 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 understandable to say that but a lot of people can't actually apply it what was the key for you as a mentor slash coach to be able to be the person who could be the mirror not the guider if you get what i mean yeah. Oh, let, let me take. Let me just clarify it a bit. Sometimes the client does. They they pay you for advice. Yeah. You know, tell me what I should do. Write my schedule for me. Yeah. I'd rather teach them how to write their own schedule than write a schedule for them. Yeah. So, but what the, I guess the turning point was understanding ego. You know, <laughs> it's that old Eckhart Tolle thing. Because um, you know he he talks about living in the present moment, but he also talks about the pain body and the ego, um, which has a you know it's always wanting to be the ego is really cunning. It's always wanting to be right you know yeah. and so that, that's that's what stops you being a really good coach i think is ego and i think it's just understanding ego and putting it to the back telling it to shut up a bit and um nicely tell it to shut up and and uh and then the next step is empathy you've got to understand what's going on in that clients or my customers world you know what what is it like seeing it from through their eyes rather mm-hmm. than through my eyes and um and sitting beside them rather than across the desk from them Mm, mm. It's, to me that's number one isn't it if you can show true understanding then you can help guide people you know yeah. you know yeah. a lot of people come into it with their own context of what they think someone else is going through but yeah. how do you know until you really show understanding or empathy that's right yeah yeah, yeah go and walk a show in uh, a mile there's a little saying that says um if you really want to understand someone uh walk a mile in their shoes that way <laughs> You've got their shoes and they're a mile away. But no, in seriousness, though, yeah, you've got to walk a, walk a mile in their shoes to understand what it's like in their shoes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, another question. Just your, your joke made me totally forget my next question. Um, we, we, when as a as someone listening to the show, and we've got a pretty broad audience here because it's not necessarily endurance sport audience. Hmm. 
But, you know, a lot of people really struggle with exercise. And, and let's be honest, it's something you and I find pretty easy if you were you know, getting yeah. out the door and doing some exercise. Yeah. Yeah. What would be your advice to the person out there who, you know, the idea of going for a run seems like the climbing Mount Everest? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually love to step way back out, like get into a bloody spaceship even, or a helicopter, or get, get, and get a big perspective on, on, on your life or the world or, or New Zealand or whatever and think, well, actually, how, why, why is it hard for, for me to go for a run or why, what's, what's happening here? And, yeah, like, so this is a big issue at the moment with, you know, obesity, diabetes, yeah. all those sorts of issues. What's stopping people from actually getting out and doing exercise? And so when I say perspective, in this case, I like to think, right, oh, let's go back several generations or millennia or centuries, whatever you like to call it, and think it's only in the, for starters, it's only in the last generation or two generations that we've been modifying things. You know, it's an exponential growth curve where with technology, diet, food, exercise, sitting in a car, all those sorts of things have really grown. And for centuries and centuries and centuries before that, this human body has really evolved to... Well, I'm putting it around the wrong way. If we, if we look back at our predecessors, our, this machine, which we call a body, this body wasn't designed to to eat packaged food. It wasn't designed to sit in a car or it wasn't designed to sit at a desk. And it can't evolve in the time we're expecting it to evolve, i.e. two generations. So in actual fact, this machine likes to run on food that's freshly out of the garden, freshly out of the ground, freshly picked off a tree or protein that's just been running around a few minutes or hours ago, you know, and we've, it's meat or freshly caught fish or whatever. And um, so we can't expect it to perform and stay slim and healthy if we're doing all this other stuff to it, like not exercising and sitting mm -hmm. sedentary and eating that sort of food and um, staying up, you know, watching telly all night, you know, that's not natural. It's not, it's not something this machine has designed to do. So once we've got that perspective, you've got to think, well, okay, what is it that's stopping us then in this modern world? And it really boils down to laziness. You know, and um, I jump straight to it there, and it may sound egotistical to say that, but if, if, if we went through a, you know, sat down for half an hour and just, I did reflective listening with someone, you know, a form of coaching, mm -hmm. then um, they would come to this realisation that, well, actually, yeah, it is just because we're being lazy. We, we're seduced by um, technology. We're seduced by sugar and fat and salt. And um, it's natural, though. The brain naturally is always seeking an easy way to do stuff. Mm. It's always. It's not lazy, really. It's. It just wants to make life easier. And so you've got to understand that that level of motivation. And we jump straight to the point here in, in one minute or two minutes, but. You know, I, I like to take a more circuitous route to get the, you know, take more time to, to come to this conclusion that uh, we just need to take a, you know, concrete pill and, and realize, when, uh, or we just need to understand that what we're doing by not exercising and what we're doing by eating these refined foods is actually not natural. And it's not how we're going to get the best performance. And it's not how we're going to get the best longevity or sustainability out of our lives. Mm -hmm. Just, just two more questions. Um, oh, can I just, can I just add to that? Yeah, you go. That was that was an away from type attitude. So then, then I'd like to flip that over and say, well, actually, what would it be like if we did eat really good food and if we did do the right sort of exercise and then paint the bright toward motivation picture of um, something that's really compelling? So we've got away from and toward motivation going. So that, that that client or that person that I'm talking to will, will suddenly you know, feel way more um, happy to be driven towards a, you know a healthier lifestyle. Mm. One thing you you're, you're really big on and quite vocal in New Zealand, which I really love, is this kind of let kids be kids. Um, oh yeah, yeah, Eating yeah. You tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, ooh, another big subject, but um, <laughs> let me. <laughs> Let me start by saying, okay, there's a school near where I live that has banned kids outside to play when there's icy puddles, i.e. a frost, because one kid fell over and broke their wrist. And so they think it's unsafe for kids to do that. The same school and most schools in New Zealand now have uh, all the trees with the, in the playground with the lower branches chopped out so kids can't climb the trees anymore. Now, you and I and many of the older listeners here will... Um, 
have been in their childhood allowed to climb trees and we all fell out of trees and we hurt ourselves and we used to have go-karts or trolleys and we crashed and we didn't wear helmets and we hit our heads and we broke an arm or two here and there and we did fall over in icy puddles and we did hurt ourselves but and you know but but that's that's why we're still alive now in our field of adventure sport because i know that falling out of a tree a couple of meters really hurt me or broke my wrist but falling off that cliff which is 10 meters high it's going to kill me because you know i have a measure of comparison mm. and so we're breeding kids who are a bit naive the same thing's happening in our sport now so i remember when i started you know 25 years ago the the, the local lions club or rotary club ran a charity uh fundraising triathlon for us you know they said okay they, they didn't know how anything about sport or anything they just wanted to get make some money for their to put back into the community so they said right oh, no, you start over there and you run up that hill and you finish over there and you have a bike kayak and run go to it figure it out yourself and you know we got a wee bit hurt here and there and uh, made some mistakes broke a boat or two and a half and crashed off our bikes now and then but we figured it out and it was incredibly satisfying to have got to the end we figured out the skills we needed for training and managed the risk on the day and we got to the end looked back and said shit what a what a ride that was that was a hoot and that a sense that appeals to our sense of confidence you know we can manage our own risk and that grows our self-esteem and i think that's kind of encoded in the hunter-gatherer sort of survivalist dna we have as well as humans and so something happened in new zealand uh ooh, I can't remember what year it was 10 years ago or something like that where no more than that 15 years ago where a cyclist died on a downhill race and it was, yeah. it was a cycle race to Akara called Le Race and the organizer got um, convicted of criminal nuisance in a court of law um, and I think you know that's it, it, absolutely wrong it's, it's, it's tragic that the athlete died and I really feel for the family but the police took it upon themselves um, probably with some encouragement to to uh, take this organizer of the race to court and i think the organizer of the race actually should have deserved a medal for providing a forum for athletes to be able to go and train and test themselves and in other words the, the, the it's a blame mentality that um it's actually who's gonna who's to blame here Any, and usually is anyone except the blooming person who made the mistake themselves which i the athlete so what's happened is a long story so i'm going to cut to the chase now so what's happened is WorkSafe have stepped in and said, no, no, you have to have all these things checked off or every safety thing checked off now. Uh, in a race, you have to go through and mark off all the hazards. You have to um, tick these boxes on this form and make a report and you have to mark off with safety tape and cones and banners where the edge of the cliff is and where the sharp rock is and where that branch is. So cutting to the chase, <laughs> races have, very become, have become very sanitised. Nothing like that original Lions Club fundraiser event um, where everything is supposedly checked off, all the risks are managed. And athletes can just throw themselves at the race with gay abandon without having to think about the risk of themselves. I.e., we're breeding stupid athletes, athletes who can't think for themselves, can't manage their own risk. And ironically, the races are so easy and soft that there's no sense of satisfaction in doing them anymore because you don't have to manage your own risk and training and skills. So they're not attractive anymore and uh, as much. And um, I think that's that's very clear in my racing because i've seen it and experienced it it's also definitely happening in the workplace so you know, i've seen it happening there too and i think um this is a dangerous place we're going to i think this is where adventure racing is really good because it still enables athletes to make some of their own risk management choices um and why a lot of the races are going to third world countries where there isn't any works, workplace health and safety sort of requirement so that they can put a more genuine adventure race on uh, one that isn't sort of like a Disneyland race that we'd have to do in New Zealand now because of well, I mean, God's own still managing, but I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm uh, involved in the organisational side of God's own, and I, I I see the the health and safety hoops that they have to jump through. So it's a very dangerous precedent we're setting by controlling stuff too much. And you can you know we can have a race organiser or an, uh, an official go through and do the tick box thing on the on the clip chart. A clipboard thing and supposedly list up all the hazards but you will never ever ever manage all of the hazards and so that's a very dangerous precedent to set and to, so what do we do about it well i think we can't change the government very easily but what we can do is we can manage the people in our sphere of influence you know our family our kids our school and, and encourage kids and and adults to that for that matter to be able to go out and just explore the limits and, and, and make their own choices and, and explain to kids why you shouldn't do it. Don't, don't say, oh, you sh you, you're not allowed to climb that tree. You say, well, if you climb the tree and you fall out, you break your arm, so your choice, off you go and make your own decisions. Mm -hmm. And that's the effect, effect we can have. And I also 
<laughs> this is really contentious, Bev, and I'm not sure if I mentioned on your show, but I'm going to anyway. Go on. Um, I think we need to let natural selection rule a bit. Let me tell you about a race. <laughs> let me tell you about a race. Well, actually, no, let me tell you about a thing. We drive across the McKenzie country a lot. You know, there might be four of us in the car with mountain bikes on the back. We're going um, on a four-hour drive to a mountain bike race. And the McKenzie country where we drive across, there's a lot of rabbits. And we've got a rule, though. Whoever's driving, we share driving. Whoever's driving is not allowed to swerve for a rabbit if one runs across in front of a car. Because, uh, you know, we we assume, I think it's correct, that four human lives are probably worth more than one rabbit life. So if we squash the rabbit, and it's not nice squashing rabbit, but... But you're making a I actually course. think we're doing. I actually think we're doing the rabbit population and a, a, a favour by squashing the rabbits that tend to run on the roads. We're eliminating that DNA that is foolish, and and, and so the DNA of the rabbits that tend to play out in the paddocks um, is getting the DNA pool is getting smarter, and. You know, I, I love that justification. I, I, yeah. It's now, weak at best, but I'll give it to you. Uh, no, it's not weak at all. You apply it across <laughs> to the human race. <laughs> and, you know, what sort of people are we allowing to to survive, dare I say? And this is where it's contentious. I know we, we don't want people to hurt themselves, but we've got to let nature evolve us to being smart, you know, and yeah. let people hurt themselves. Even if, they, even if they don't die, at least they hurt themselves and they learn. They've got to allow people to hurt themselves. And the same, here's another good example. It's a real-life example. Uh, we did an adventure, a, a world record across the Sahara Desert. We, we crossed it by wind power on kites, you know, kites wow. and buggies. So Peter Lynn, a famous, famous worldwide but not New Zealand kite manufacturer, he's a very, very smart man. He's uh, got factories around the world, but they make kites, uh, high-performance kites for kite surfing, kites for kiting across the Sahara Desert, buggies and those sorts of things. Also carnival kites, world record size flying octopus and stuff like that, you know, carnival kites. And so with every new kite, he writes a, an instruction manual, how to set the kite up, how to tie the knots, how to launch it. And of course, there's the back pages, there's the compulsory safety notes. You know, do not fly your kites next to thunderstorm, next to power lines. Don't fly your kites in thunderstorms. And, you know, Peter, being a very intelligent man, got really sick and tired of all the safety crap. And he's, he's ripped those pages out, screwed them up, and replaced them with one sentence. It says, warning. Kite flying is subject to Darwinism. You know, and I really think we need to let go of the reins a bit here and let people learn from themselves. And Because yeah. uh, otherwise we're breeding people who just are stupid. And what sort of world would that be to live in? Yeah, and, and also kids. Because, you know, what what does that, what are we limiting them from is probably the big thing as well. It's not just that, that kind of self-mechanism self about how to live safely. It's also what experiences aren't they having that they're missing out on because of safety. Oh, school camps, all that sort of stuff, falling yeah. by the wayside so, because Parents are too afraid to go because of, you know, the possibility of litigation if someone gets hurt or all the sexual things about it. You know, it's just, it's just the fear is actually doing the wrong thing. Yeah, it really mm. is. Hey, Steve, if, if, uh, a question I'd like to ask is uh, when you're being your best, who is Steve Gurney? When I'm being my best? Oh, that's a big question. Um, yeah, okay. I'm, I think I'm, I'm curious. I, I always have this curiosity. How can, how can we have more, you know, how can we have more fun doing this? How can we uh, do this better? How can we um, grow people more out of this? Or is there another way? There's more than one right answer. Mm. And um, I'm also being fun and jovial, but smart, you know? Yeah, so you nice. can have fun while doing stuff, and that brings out the best in a person, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. Hey, thanks for your time today, mate. You're a bloody legend. Uh, lots of great insight on there, mate. Just I really appreciate it. If people want to get in contact with you or follow you, where do they go? I was at my website, stevegurney.co.nz. Okay, good times. Thanks for your time, mate. You're a star. Cheers, man. Thanks. John, you haven't heard it, so I can't say your thoughts. No, but Steve Gurney was... Did you train much of Steve? No, no, he was... Uh... He used to come to sometimes do the, the old cop ride. All right. It's occasionally. Yeah, no, he occasionally came to Monday night running session, but he was probably starting to come towards the end of his career when I was sort of... Uh, doing my main chunk of racing but uh yeah no he's always a friendly guy says hello and uh you know he was one of those guys that was not particularly talented and did very very well with the talent that he had and beat athletes that were better than or more talented than him um just through uh really good training and did well from a well i don't know if he did well from a corporate point of view but he was was a marketable fella and he's quirky as well isn't he quirky and so he did well, I don't know if he did well out of it, but he did better than other people. And in a sport where there's not many professional athletes... He got something that you've always tried to get and you've never got yet. 
Sorry? He got something you've, you're always trying to get and you haven't What's got that? yet. The car. The car. Because exactly. remember he got the Sub- Subaru. Subarus, yeah. Yeah, because he was, he was like the face of Subaru in New Zealand. But he was an innovator as well, so he was a bit of an engineering guy. And one thing that he did one year was <laughs> amazing. So the, the, the coast to coast, wasn't that many rules. And so what he and did... And deliberately not, hey, they, they kind of yeah. liked it. It was a bit like, what's that sport? Um, Brecker, it's a bit like Brecker. Yeah, so the final leg on the coast to coast is, uh, it's, it's a 70-kilometre bike ride and it's across the Canterbury Plains, so it's slightly downhill. There's no hills whatsoever. It's just straight line t- TT. Yep. And so what he did, he built this fiberglass pod. So you get on his bike, get on his aero bars. Put and the pod over the top. Massive pod. And this is a fully enclosed, you know, it was probably sitting, I don't know, 30, 40 centimetres off the ground. Complete ultimate yeah, but, but, but side on, if you, you, so you think basically like a big white kind of fiberglass kind of dome that went over the bike, right over the top. So he was encapsulated in this dome. It's unbelievable. And it was aerodynamic, wasn't it? That's one of the most innovative things you've ever seen. <laughs> God knows what he would have done if there was any sidewinds. I've never actually asked him about that, but it w- you would have just got decimated with any sidewinds. But he would, God, he would have been flying. It would have been amazing. Don't know how hot it would have been in there. I'm sure he had a little bit of ventilation. But if, if you find a picture, Bevan, I'm, going, I'm trying oh, to find one now. It's, it's brilliant. I, I, if I can find one, I'll put it in the show notes because it was, it was. It was genius. Mm. It was, um, and it got outlawed the next year. But uh, by that stage, it was. I, I, I wish I remember that because I would love to have heard before I did interview him. I would love to have heard if he, there was much of an advantage. Actually, did he feel it was? Actually- oh, there would have been. Yeah, yeah. No, that would have been significant. The downside is you'd be getting blown all over the place. You'd be getting very hot. It's aerodynamically massive advantage, like minutes. <laughs> Minutes. <laughs> I gotta hope I can find a photo because it's seriously. Yeah. Another thing he did, you know, um, and I'm not sure if he did this in the race, but I know he there trialed it, is. it. There it is. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. It's bloody closer than 30 centimeters to the ground. So he's got a little glass panel in the little plastic panel in the front, so you can see where he's going. Uh, absolutely brilliant, and it's very close to the ground. He also had this kite that he'd um, attached to the front of his kayak, and so he'd get uh, assistance with like a sail. Uh, <laughs> And I don't know if he ever used that in a race, but yeah, just a fantastic innovator. Um, so anyway, well done, Steve Gooney. He had a great career, and as Bevan said, he's had his struggles, and I know you talked to him about that. Um, so good on him. Yeah, good stuff. Okay, so I'll put a link to his website. You can check out his stuff and get his books as well. Lucky Legs is one of the books that he has. And I'll also show you the photo because it's absolute gold. Um, sponsor. Sponsor. Extreme Endurance. One of the things Steve Gurney would have been doing after races and most of you guys should be doing as well is making sure you look after your recovery. Extreme Endurance have uh, two flavors of protein and it's actually called protein so you recover and rebuild. It's got 20 grams of super grade protein blend, 4.2 grams of of uh, branch chain amino acids. It's got lactate. Uh, it's got essential electrolytes, uh, B6, B12, and D. It's got the flavors. I love the flavors of this. It's, uh, it's got this beautiful vanilla and fantastic chocolate. It's two pound bag, which contains 30 servings. So check out Extreme Endurance Protein for a fantastic uh, recovery drink. Uh, just I, I like to mix it in with milk myself and just give it a good shake up with a bit of ice and. Uh, Bob's your uncle. Bob is your uncle. Recovery. Check it out, xendurance.com. Remember, Bevan mentioned this before, if you join their XND team. That was like a month ago. A month ago. (laughs) uh, Join the XND team. Cost you 95 bucks, but then you get a 25% discount on uh, your purchases. And if you are buying products regularly, you will get your money back and save plenty. Uh, There's also free shipping uh, to America. So if you are in the States, check out their team XND and join on up. Anywhere else in the world, uh, you've also got the the European sites. Uh, You can get on there, Aussies and Kiwis. You can get Extreme Endurance and Immune from me here in Christchurch. Fantastic products. Just make sure you look after yourself and bounce back from your training. Immune Boost helps to keep those lurgies away. Uh, Check it all out and support one of our long-standing sponsors, xendurance.com. Good stuff. Okay, so the question I have for you, John, is... Next week, we are back in the studio. We are back in the studio. Let's just wrap things up. First of all, let's do patrons. Patrons. Bevan, I'm just going back. Connor, sensational Sanders. Fantastic. Angus, the wild bull Boyd. 
you got, you've got this Luke. last one, Luke the Engine Goodwin. Yeah. I just want to check that out because I only had Luke written down on my spreadsheet. And so I checked it out. Uh, the company he works for is called Goodwin, which is his name. Yep. And he works for a motoring company, okay. uh, which is why we would have called him the Engine. Because we're pretty original. But I'm tempted to change his name because I pulled it up. And there was a picture of Luke on the website, and he looks like Pauli Kuru. Oh, blonde hair. And, and Pauli Kuru uh, was one of the better athletes not to win Kona. He finished, he was in that sort of Mark era, uh, Alan, yeah. Mark Allen era, where he finished second and third uh, and just lit it up elsewhere in the world as well. Won Ironman Australia multiple times. Wasn't he, with, he was the sprint off as well, wasn't he? He had the sprint off with, with King Glar uh, and uh, unfortunately lost out on that occasion. But he was one of the great athletes of the sort of 90s. Um, so I'm tempted, Luke, if you're listening. If you if you want a Scandinavian name, let us know and we'll, we'll come up with something well, else. And if you think he if like you can't visualise him, think Dolph Lundgren in the eighties. Yes. you know what I mean. <laughs> like, yeah, Dolph Lundgren. That's kind of what he looks like. And we have had Pauli Kuru on Legends of Triathlon, so you can go and listen to him there. He uh, ended up and he's still is, well, he still was when we interviewed him. It was a politician in uh, bloody hell. Now I've got to think what country he was. It Norway, it's not Sweden, it's not Denmark. Uh, Somewhere. Finland, Finland. Finland. Yeah. There you go. Home of Polar Heart Rate Monitors. There you go. Uh, sponsors, John. Extreme Endurance. Your lactic buffer. If you want to get your email dear, just go to the website, go down the bottom, put your email details in. If you want to become a patron, same website, go there, support the boys and what we do. Win a trip to Kona. Just do it because you know you want to. Um, you want to get some coaching, check out on Check out my website, bevanjamesisles.com. Also, email us at I am talk at gmail. I am talk podcast at gmail.com with websites, age group of the week, or any other feedback. John, we're back in the studios next week. It's been a big, big mission. This has it has indeed. But we've got we've kept up our record of a show every week for thirteen plus years. Wow. If any of you guys want to get on a real adventure, Epic Camp France is coming up. I know it's only about a month away from here. Oh, you still got a spot. I've still got a couple of spots. If, if you do want to just go, bugger this, I want to go and do some do adventure. It. It's going to be amazing going through the Pyrenees. And Bevan's mentioned this on previous shows. Sometimes we just get focused on going race, 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 going as fast as we can. But this is a highlight. Whenever I go on epic camps, I know obviously I organise them and I'm going to be there, but it is a massive highlight of my year and something I love to look forward to because you just you go a bit nuts and you just go, we'll see what we can do, ride some amazing places, go ride some of the climbs that you've seen in the Tour de France. We'll be going up the Col de Tourmalade. Can't wait to do that again. I've exploded on that climb multiple times. I'm going to crush it this time, Bevan. Do you know what I'd love to do, John? I'd love to one day in my life just go, babe, we're going to the airport. <laughs> and you know, and just because one time we, one time I said to Joe, let's just see what it would cost if we did that. And flights actually aren't that expensive. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It just you know, because like I'm very planned. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And with money and everything, and you know, mm-hmm. and it's like because it works. You know, I've got these strategies, but I've never really done that thing where it's like back it up. I rang, <laughs> I rang Radio Sport for the first time ever. <laughs> <Did you? laughs> yeah. um, so Radio Sport is a, is a sports talk back. talk back show. And you know what was funny? I rang them and then I was the clip that they've been using through the week. Right. When they go, listen to this show and it's got me on it. But the, the reason I rang Radio Sport was I was driving along on Friday, Joe and I were driving and they were talking about back it up, that's not right. No, no, it wasn't that. No, it was because what's happening in English football right now, mm-hmm. like it's, it's pretty amazing. This was it? about a month or so. Yeah, this is, so right now, you, you guys probably will know who won the Champions League. Yes. But we, we're listening to this. So this is the week when Liverpool and is it Tottenham Hotspur? Yep, got through. Um, got through and, you know, so pretty awesome stuff. And I was just saying, what would, what would you be willing to sacrifice to go to the game? Like, you know, like what would be your thing? And it reminded me of when the Rugby World Cup final was in New Zealand back in 2011. Mm. The next week, we won it. It was a horrible game. Mm. Remember? It was yep. a horrible game. Horrible. Yep. But we won it. Yep. It, was, it was Muscled it through. It was a horrible game. I mean, 11-10 we won by. Mm-hmm. It was nerve-wrecking. We should have dominated them. We didn't. They played really well. So the next week, I'm at the gym, and this young guy who's probably about 21, mm. 22, nice kid, real nice kid, I, I goes to me, you're not going to believe what I did last weekend. I said, what's that? He goes, I went to Rubber Cup. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. Like, no, no, no. I woke up on Saturday morning and I thought to myself, I'm going to the Rugby World Cup. Mm. They had no flights, no tickets, no mm. anything. I go, mate, what they cost you? He goes, 5,000 bucks. Mm. Yeah. You know, but I've, I've never, I, I, I don't, I've never been that person. Mm. You know, because I'd go, oh, you know, I'm saving some money. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Whereas, like, like just you saying that there, yeah, I'm sure there's a couple of people right now who go, you know what, I'd love to, I've always wanted to eat at camp. Mm. 
Maybe maybe it's the time. It is. <laughs> you're, you're my new marketing assistant, Bevan. No, seriously, we had such a good time. And I've got quite a varied uh, group of abilities this time. So if you're a little bit on the slower side and you're thinking, not, obviously if you're the back of the packer, it's not going not to work. But um, just pop me an email because, uh, God, we have some good times. And uh, just riding those mountains in France, if you've never ridden mountains before, it is just something else. And you'll have a whole new appreciation for the Tour de France and the riders that go through there and race up there multiple times. Now, I know that you are a contributor to Radio Sport or News Talk ZB. That yes. right winged. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you ever rang? I have not. And I'm like you. There's been times where I think I should be ringing. You're, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So and I should contribute a little bit more. Actually, and you know what happened, John? I got straight through. Nice. Because like, I, I rang. Because you know what it's like when you're on radio stations, they normally leave you on hold, but you can hear them. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking it's going to be a 15 minute wait, but it doesn't matter. It's a great story. I'll be in, you know. Hello? Hey, uh, who's this? Bevan. Bevan. Okay, mate, tell us your story. <laughs> I was a bit shocked at first. Nice. So there you go. There you go. That's my radio sports story. Let's wrap it up, John. I'm Russ. I'm Endo. Train hard. Read smart. Kia kaha. kaha.